0: Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church, and we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. Uh, Go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Acts, the book of Acts. We are going to try to cover the largest section of text we have covered so far. I I know. Everybody's like, that's not going to happen. But Acts chapter 21, verse 1, all the way pretty much to the end of chapter 24. uh, We're going to kind of take a whirlwind view of all of this. Uh, But part of the reason for that is it really... While there's, there's kind of a long section, it's really one story. It's the story of Paul getting back to Jerusalem and the story of him being arrested. And so being that it's all one story, that's how I've tried to divide up the book fairly well, is story by story. And so we will, we will do that. But there's quite a few details, as you would imagine, in three chapters, quite a few details of what Paul went through as he was heading back to Jerusalem and of course, facing the conflict that he had once he got there. So we do know it. it, it gives us a long list of places that he traveled there at the beginning of chapter 21. Uh, you've got him going from Kos to Roach for, to Petara, then Phoenicia, Cyprus, Syria, Ty- I mean, it, it's just place after place after place, because he's just traveling away from where he was. But I love this phrase right at the very beginning, just because it will tie it together to the last sermon where he had that long, tearful conversation with the elders. It says, after we tore ourselves away from them. And I love that thought. Uh, Again, as I've revealed to you all several times through this, I have always, for whatever reason, had a sort of stoic, Uh, very serious view of Paul, that he was kind of a, uh, I I won't go as far as to say heartless, but tough, like he was just kind of a a, a tough man who didn't really express his, his emotions well. But that, that's not really what you see when you go through the text. I'm not really sure where I get that impression from other than knowing all of the things he went through in persecution for delivering the gospel. It takes a bit of a tough man to be stoned and shipwrecked and starved and all the things that he went through in his ministry. But here, he has such a heart for not just the gospel and the message and those who need redemption, but he has a heart for God's people. He, he is very personal and very connected to this, this group of people. So as he has traveled from place to place, he still has this heart for the people. And you see that in his letters, right? You know, I've, I remember you in all of my prayers and how the, the thanksgiving and the kindnesses he shows in his, in his letters, you see that here too. He had to tear himself away from this group of men. And you can imagine how true that is. Paul knows what he is going back to Jerusalem to face. He's been warned by the Spirit. exactly. I would imagine he's not real excited about getting there other than he feels the need to get there. But he knows he's going to face persecution. He knows he's going to be arrested. He knows... Uh, that things are about to happen to him. And so he travels back to that place, uh, back to Jerusalem or toward Jerusalem. It's also interesting as you read through this, look at verse 4, chapter 21, verse 4. The way the Christian Standard Bible reads is this. We sought out the disciples and stayed there for seven days. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now, I find that interesting because if you look back in the previous chapter, he says in chapter 20, verse 22, And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But in Paul's mind, the Spirit is pulling him toward Jerusalem. In these Christians' minds, the Spirit is saying, stay away. Which is it? And the best thing I can come up with to try to make it's not that I think the Spirit is telling Paul one thing and telling these other people something different. It's that the Spirit is telling them all the same thing. You are going to face chains and afflictions. And Paul's interpretation of that is, I will endure what I have to endure. And the other Christian's interpretation of that is, you need to avoid it as much as you can avoid it. And while the Spirit is telling the same thing, some are interpreting the message as being a warning, and some are interpreting the message as being informing. The reason I bring that up is because I think sometimes we have a habit of missing, misreading the signs. We, we think that the job, the task, is to avoid. When sometimes the job, you know, what we're, what's happening is we're just being informed. We have all of these warnings through Scripture about all who wish to live godly will suffer persecution. Y'all read that, right? Paul tells Timothy that. How often are we warned about, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal in which you are about to endure. We've got all these warnings through scriptures that if you live the life of a Christian and you live that life with courage and with boldness, you will suffer for it. That's informative, not warnings. Warnings. That is not teaching us to avoid by living less boldly. That is informing us so that when we do suffer, we will know God knew it was going to happen, God's with us, and God is seeing us through it. Do you see the difference there? So they travel through different cities. They come to Philip's house, and we're told here this is Philip the Evangelist. He's one of the seven. We're also told, interestingly, he has four virgin daughters who all prophesy. Not, you know, we don't always know what to do with that kind of information. It's just information about his daughters. Uh, but again, that's not surprising being that Luke, the writer, spends a lot of time talking about the women in the, in the ministry or women in, in the life of Jesus or the women who did roles or served roles in the church. But I I do find it interesting that Philip, one of the seven, is called Philip the Evangelist. And I would assume this is speaking of the the Philip that is chosen in Acts chapter 6 as one of the seven men who were taking care of the widows. And I would assume that this is the same Philip that we read of in Acts chapter 8 that has traveled to Samaria in order to deliver the gospel to the people there. He's the one who who is responsible for having taught Simon the sorcerer, and he is the one who was responsible for having taught the Ethiopian treasurer. This this Philip is still active. He's still working. He's still out there evangelizing. He's still fulfilling the ministry of an evangelist. Uh, And so Paul comes and stays with Philip in his house. We keep reading, uh, Agabus comes to Paul, and we don't really, this is the only place we really hear of Agabus, that Agabus basically says, uh, we need to, you need to know what's about to happen. Paul already knows what's about to happen. He's been warned in every city by the Holy Spirit that that afflictions and chains await await him. But he basically goes through the exercise, if he removes Paul's belt, he ties up hands and feet and he says, whoever's the owner of this belt, this is what he has awaiting him, And I love Paul's response here. I put it up on the screen because I wanted to make sure you see it. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. See that? Paul, while everybody else sees this as a warning to avoid... Paul sees this as just informative of what's about to happen. It is a a bolstering of his courage. But I I love, again, that emotional side of Paul. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Do you think Paul's heart is breaking because of the bad news? No. Why is Paul's heart breaking? Because their hearts are breaking. That kind of connection and relationship between Paul and his fellow Christian is the same kind of connection and relationship that we should have in the way that we interact with each other. When one of us hurts, we should all hurt. When one of us rejoices, we should all rejoice. The next verse says, Since he would not be persuaded, we said no more except, the Lord's will be done and that really should be the way we respond when we are when when we are faced with life our response should should just be whatever the Lord wants we should be like Mary you know, let it be done as the Lord has said that's the way we should be all right uh, we we Continue on. Paul gets back to Jerusalem. He reports his ministry to the saints there, to the elders, to James there about the the things that have been happening among the Gentiles. And the church is very excited. Uh, It's interesting to me the way they respond here. It says there, when they reached Jerusalem, this is down verse 17 of chapter 21, the brothers and sisters welcomed us warmly. The following day, Paul went in with us to James, and the elders were present. After greeting them, he reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through the ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God and said, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed, and they're all jealous for the law, but they've been informed about you. You're teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses? Teaching them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs? So what is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Now, here's where you start to see problems. The church is excited about what God is doing but they're not excited about what Paul is doing. Do, do you see that distinction here? You know, Paul, whenever he delivers news, he gives evidence as to the fact that it's what God wants to happen. God is doing miracles among the Gentiles. You see the Gentiles turning to the gospel. God is saving them. God is giving them the ability to do signs and miraculous things, just like every, he's giving the... Uh, anybody who has become a Christian he gives evidence as to what God is doing just like he did back in chapter 15 and they're they're excited about what God is doing but they're not excited about what Paul is doing because what they're hearing is Paul is 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 teaching them to quit being Jews and they don't like that they're they're particularly concerned about public opinion. Did you pick up on that in that little, that little section we read? This is what we're hearing. This concerns us because if you're back, the public is going to hear that you're back and this is going to cause problems. And so they're concerned about public opinion. Now notice, they, they never said Paul, we believe you're doing wrong. What they've said is, Paul, we know there are some who believe that what you're doing is wrong, and therefore we're going to ask you to take some extra steps in order to appease that group of people because they're going to come and be upset that you're here. You know, when you word it like that, everybody's like, hmm, that doesn't sound good. That's essentially what what I think is happening here. And so they give Paul some instruction uh, that you need to go and display that you're not really against Judaism. Uh, Now again, notice the the complaint they have. You have taught the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, not to circumcise their children, and to stop living according to our customs. Now, are any of those three things wrong? If Paul is going around and teaching those things, which he probably was, because all three of those things are correct, and we read them in his letters, like in the book of Romans and in the book of Galatians, none of those are wrong. He's telling the Jews, when you turn to Christ, you're no longer liable or obligated to the law of Moses. You no longer need to sacrifice, or not sacrifice, Nobody. you're not supposed to sacrifice your children under either law, but you no longer have to circumcise your children, and you no longer have to keep all of these customs and traditions and rules that we've kept as Jews. Those are right teaching. So what are we supposed to do? Well, here's what we tell you. We have four men who have made a vow. Take these men, purify yourself, along with them, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that what they were told about you amounts to nothing, and that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. Now, I'll be honest. Me, as a Christian living far removed from this situation, I'm going, ugh. There's nothing about that I like. There's nothing about that idea of, of just, you know, you need to go and prove that, you're, that, that these things you've been accused of teaching that are right things aren't truly what you've been teaching because you yourself still adhere to and keep the law, which we know according to Galatians, which is probably one of Paul's, earliest letters and has already been written by the time this story is happening. He has said circumcision is nothing and that you do not have to keep the law and that if you try to keep the law, even in one point, you're liable to the whole law. He's taught against this. They're accusing him of teaching the very thing he has written about and they are saying you need to go get this fixed so that the public opinion isn't against you. Now, I, I find that interesting. Now, they do go on to say, uh, with regard to the Gentiles who believe we've written a formal letter, says they should keep themselves sacri- from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from sexual immorality. Those are the same four things that were in the letter that were sent out in Acts chapter 15. Paul is very aware of that letter. He went around and delivered that letter to people. He was part of the conference that made those decisions in the first place, so he's familiar with all of that. So he goes and does this. He goes and he submits to the leadership and the decisions made by James and the elders at the church in Jerusalem, and he goes and he pays for the head shavings. And he purifies himself. And he does the very things they've asked him to do in order to keep peace. Does it work? No. And that's the part that I think sometimes we lose track of. Sometimes we do the best we can and it still isn't enough because people who want to cause problems are going to cause Problems. It's just their mission. It's what they want to do, and they find some way of doing it. And in this case, in the story of Acts 21, 22, 23, and 24, they are doing it based on lies. Here's how we know that. Keep reading with me. So they come, they start stirring up trouble. We see this there, verse 27, verse 28. Fellow Israelites, help, they yell. This is the man who teaches everyone, everywhere, against our people, our law, and this place. Talking about the temple. What's more, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Do you see that? Wait, they made an accusation that was a lie. But they did it because they just happened to see this Gentile walking around with Paul in the city. So we know Paul went to the temple, so we know that the Gentile went into the temple with him. Lies, 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 lies. But they will use lies to their advantage if it's what they got to do to stir up trouble. Does that ever happen in the church? Absolutely it does. And that's, that's one of the problems we deal with because we're people. You keep going, and it's interesting that uh, he was about to be brought to the barracks. Paul said, to the commander, am I allowed to say something to you? And he said, you know how to speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who started the revolt some time ago and led 4,000 men of the Assyrians, excuse me, the assassins into the wilderness? Where in the world does that come from? Like, do do you see? I mean, and my assumption is, that the lies have grown and grown and grown and now everybody's just assuming every wrong thing that they possibly can. Did that ever happen? You ever see that happen among God's people? Absolutely. Because the truth is, when somebody wants to stir up trouble, it doesn't take much. It's not hard to stir up trouble among people. People, because I hate to say this, people like trouble. We like gossip. We like to take a story that's this big and make it humongous and make a big deal out of nothing. And we like to make one small little problem become a massive problem of character. We like to say, well, I heard him say this, and somebody else goes, well, I got you beat. I can tell you more than that, whether it's true or not. And that's just what people do. And I I don't mean to pick only on the church. That's our setting here. This happens in your job. This will happen in a family. This will happen in just about every grouping of people you've ever been around. Somebody has lied, assumed, or gossiped, and blown something way out of proportion. But in Paul's case, this leads to his arrest, and it leads to him being bound up, and it leads to him being thrown and left in prison. The crowd were literally ready to just go ahead and kill the man in the streets. That's how bad it gets. And it's what, what God has been warning him about the whole time. Well, Paul decides he's going to defend himself in front of the people. And we've seen him do this multiple times through the book of Acts. We've seen him prevented from doing this multiple times as crowds and riots have been started up. And he's ready to go stand before the crowd and the Christians are like, No, 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 no. let's just get you out of the city. Let's just move you along. Well, there's nobody there to pull him out of the city this time uh, uh, yet. And so he, he gets up before the people and he gives his credentials. He was a, a faithful Jew. He did the right thing. He gave a story of, of there in chapter 22 of his conversion, that he was on the road to Damascus and that he was persecuting Christians and, and he has this confrontation with Jesus and that he goes into Damascus and Ananias comes and, and baptizes him and he's got this great story that we've read before many times. They still want to kill him. They don't care about his credentials. They don't care about his story. They don't care that he actually is respectful to the Jews and he's trying to be all things to all people. They don't care that he didn't really take a Gentile into the temple, uh, even though that's what he's been accused of and violating and, and, uh, and, and making things um, unclean in the temple. They don't care about any of that. And so his one defense that he has at this point is He's a Roman citizen. And so he cannot be put to death whether the Jews want to do that or not. He's brought before the Sanhedrin as a result of that. Uh, He speaks there realizing he's not really going to have a fair trial or a fair audience there. It says that when he realizes that's the case, he decides he's going to, uh, honestly, now he decides to stir things up. So this is down in chapter 23. Says verse 6, when Paul realized that one that one part of them were Sadducees, and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. I am being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Now here's what I find interesting. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and there neither angel nor spirit would the Pharisees affirm. The shouting grew loud and some of the scribes of the Pharisees party got up and argued vehemently. We find nothing evil in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? So five minutes before... Do you think the scribes and the Pharisees were defending Paul or against Paul? See, here's the thing. They weren't actually mad at Paul. They were just mad. It wasn't that they were necessarily had a dispute with Paul. They had a dispute with everyone. And as soon as it worked, in their, as soon as they had a bigger dispute to focus on, the smaller dispute became unimportant, and they started defending Paul. Because that's kind of how this works. I have found over the years of being a Christian, I've been part of the church now for 41 years, whether that would be with my dad as a preacher or myself as a preacher. And I have learned over the years that most Often, when there is a dispute, or when there is somebody who's angry in a congregation, it generally has nothing to do with what they say they're mad at, and it has more to do with their heart in the first place. Generally. I'm not going to say that's always true, because you can be genuinely and sincerely upset about a thing, but when you got some people in the church who are just repeatedly upset about everything, it has less to do with the thing and more to do with the person. And, and that's what you see here. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they were just looking for problems. And when Paul could give them an age-old an you know, age problem to discuss now they would rather discuss that than paul's guilt or innocence in this case well after that a group of assassins wants to kill paul he ends up escaping by providence and he ends up being taken to caesarea and there in caesarea he is brought before most excellent felix Remember back in our Luke class, we talked about Theophilus being most excellent Theophilus? That that appellation, that that title being given to to an official, here we've got the same title being given to Felix, the governor. He's most excellent Felix. Not sure why I apparently doubled up on my uh, animations there. He is accused, Paul is, of being a plague- and an agitator among the Jews. Now, I, I, what what a what an accusation, right? This man is a plague among our people. He agitates. He stirs up trouble everywhere he goes. He is a ringleader of the Nazarenes, this sect of Judaism that believes that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. They're, the Jews have labeled them the Nazarenes. And they accuse him of coming to desecrate the temple. Now that, that's not true. Honestly, none of that's true. Uh, he, first of all, I, I don't know that we could call him a ringleader of the Nazarenes. He's a worker. He, he goes from different towns and he, he teaches the gospel, but is he the only one doing that? Not at all. He is not a ringleader as much as he is just a servant. Is he an agitator of the Jews? Honestly, it's the Jews that stir up trouble in every city, not him. All he's doing is teaching. Is, is he a plague among the people? I, I don't think any of us would say that. And he most definitely didn't take a Gentile into the temple. So Paul gives his defense. First of all, I stirred up no trouble in Jerusalem. I did not desecrate the temple, nor is there any proof of me doing that. Uh, they caused the riot, not him. You know, basically he says, I, I didn't stir up trouble. I didn't try to get things stirred up there. I, I didn't try to make things bad. Uh, I wasn't trying to, 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 to cause trouble. But he says, but I do admit to being part of the way. Verse 14 of chapter 24. But I admit this to you. After saying, I didn't do this, I didn't do this, I didn't do this, I didn't do this, I didn't do this. But this I do admit. I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way. That I will admit without hesitation. Because that is what I love. I love that later on we're told verse 22, Felix was well informed about the way. I love that expression. I wish we would use that expression of the gospel. This is, you know, we're, we're not church of Christer's. We're followers of the way. That, that, that's just such a great great description because it's really what we're doing. Our, our path, our, our gospel, the way we do things, it's the way. It, you know, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I, 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 that, that's what we do. That, we, are, we are part of the way. That, that's what we're focused on, that's what we love. And so Felix, being informed about the way himself, had a good familiarity with what Paul was doing, what Paul was teaching, the kind of things Paul was saying. I would imagine if he was informed about the way, meaning the message of the gospel, he was probably informed about the ma- the major players or the workers that were out there in the gospel. And I would imagine he knew of Paul. I, I don't know that, but I would imagine he knew of Paul. He knew... Uh, kind of the, the, the Jerusalem church and the things that were going on there. And you find in the story that Felix likes Paul. He would actually call Paul from his, his cell so that they could just converse for a while. And I would imagine knowing Paul as well as we do from these stories, what would they often talk about? The way. Because it's what Paul talked about. Says he listened to Paul on the subject of faith in Jesus. This is verse 24. Several days later, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and listened to him on the subject of faith in Christ Jesus. Now, these were the things that Paul wanted to talk to him about. And so Paul stayed there with Felix in jail, having at least occasional opportunities to present the way to, the go- to one of the governors of Rome, the way. But Felix keeps him there because it's a way of keeping peace among the Jews. And so he just stays there in jail with him. So that's our story. A couple of lessons for you to wrap up. One is this. Sometimes the best we can pray for is the Lord's will be done. How often is it that when you've prayed, it doesn't seem like things are going the way you want them to go? Uh, you, you've, you've cautioned a brother or sister regarding some decisions that they're making, and they seem very determined to walk their path. Isn't that essentially what we have with Paul? You know, person after person has come to Paul and said, "I've been warned. If you go to Jerusalem, bad things are going to happen." He goes, "It's okay. I need to go anyway." No, 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 no. You don't understand. Like, it's going to be bad—afflictions and chains—and you're going to be tied up, and you know, it's just going to be bad. You might die. It's okay. It's where I need to go the Lord's will be done. Sometimes that's the best we can do. And the reason that's important is because ultimately what we think is best is not nearly as important as what God knows is best. And we have to at some point back away and let God's will happen. We know that. We're talking about that some, especially in an upcoming lesson on prayer. Uh, So I won't belabor that point here. Secondly is this, hospitality is expected. Just in this short section that we have, Paul stays with somebody at least on three occasions, even back in just chapter 21. You look at chapter 21, it says they came there to Tyre and they stayed for seven days. Now maybe on that occasion he stayed in in a hotel. You know, maybe maybe he stayed in a little tent on the side of the road. Maybe he brought his own way. I I doubt it, though. They find somebody, they stay there. That was a common practice in their culture. You look down just a little bit further, you've got the story of him staying with Philip in verse 8. So so we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, and there we stayed with him. You look a little bit further down in verse 16. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also went with us and brought us to Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. That's the only time we ever hear the name Nason. Starts with an M, too. That even makes it more memorable. You got Nason. What's he remembered for? For all perpetuity. What, what, what do we remember him for forever? He was hospitable. Let me ask you this. How easily would the early church have spread if people closed their homes off? You think it would have grown? Not at all. It is interesting to me, and I, I've, I've done whole lessons on, on this, this concept of hospitality. Hospitality is one of the earmarked characteristics of the early church. They were known for it not just in the Bible, but even in secular writings. They were known for their, their willingness to be hospitable to anybody. And we need to do the same thing. We need to open our homes to one another. That should be easy. And then we need to be willing to open our home even to others outside the church. But we need to be people who are willing to be hospitable to open up our home, to let people come into it. Have, and I don't just mean have people over for dinner. Have people over to stay, if that's what it takes. But that is a kind of a lost trait that we need to pick back up because it is biblical. It is right for us to do that. Third lesson is you cannot please people who are determined to have a problem. You just can't. Because The truth is you give them what they want what they want changes. Because it's not about getting what they want that they want to have a problem so if you fix the problem you present to them a solution they just change the problem so that they can continue to have the problem and and that is so I've seen so many churches torn apart by that very attitude I want to have a problem with you this is the way I'm going to have a problem with you and I'm just never going to let this go I've seen it among brethren. I've seen it among elderships. And it always tears things up. It is the exact opposite of the spirit of unity that we're supposed to have. But it was so characteristic of the Jewish people. That they wanted to have a problem with Christians and they wanted to have a problem with the gospel or the way, and so they would find anything and everything they could do, even if it meant resorting to lies and assumptions and gossip. We cannot be like that if we are going to be like Christ. Last problem or lesson is this: haters gonna hate. It's just the way it is. People who want to hate you are going to hate you until they decide they're not going to hate you. And let me caution you with, with this. It's not always your job to fix it. Sometimes it's your job to let it go. Now, if you've done something wrong, go apologize. Go fix that relationship. Leave your sacrifice at the altar. Go repair your relationship with your brother, and then come back and offer your offering. That's what Jesus taught. If you know somebody has something against you, fix it. And Jesus also taught, if you have something against someone else, it's your job to go fix it. So he places the responsibility on both sides. But if you're one of those unfortunate people that somebody has decided they're just going to hate you, they just don't like you, they're going to have a problem with you, they're going to have some sort of some issue with you, there's only so much you can do. At w- and at some point, you've got to shake the dust off the sandals on your feet and move forward. If you've done everything you know to do to fix that relationship and they have still decided to hate you, move forward. Um, there was a, a gentleman in my life uh, several years ago. He had just, for whatever reason, I, and I, I still don't really understand why, decided I, was, I was, wasn't was worth it. He was just going to hate me, and I, 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 we, we went to, we had conversations about it. Uh, we went to breakfast one day, and we, I mean, he made a list, a written list of every problem he had with me, and we went down line by line by line by line with every single thing he didn't like about me. Most of it was something I said from the pulpit or in a Bible class. So we would talk it through, and uh, I would give him the reason. And by the end of the breakfast, he, he said to me, Huh, well, Adam, if that's the way you feel about all that, I don't think I have a problem with you whatsoever. I said, Great. That didn't hold very long, like but a day or two. And that day or two, we didn't really have any interaction. So he probably still hated me those day or two. But I mean, he, he, just, he had determined I, I, I needed to, to be gone. And there was nothing I could do about it. Nothing. Other than move on. And there are some people who are going to be that way about you. There are some people who are going to be that way about certain issues. They are just so determined that the only right answer on this one issue is this, even though it is not a biblical issue, it is not an issue of of fellowship, it is not an issue that really warrants that kind of determination and dogmatism. They are just decided this is the way it has to be, and they're not going to let it go. What do you do? There's some people who are that way about their religion. They are tied to their denomination. And I've I've even had people say, as a result of Bible study, well, yeah, I recognize that my church doesn't teach the truth, but it's my church. What are you going to do? Some point, some people are just determined to be wrong, and it is not your job to fix it your job to move on and i love that paul had the ability to do that paul had the ability to say you know what i'm moving on from this i'm moving on to something better and brothers and sisters sometimes that's the best thing we can do is move to something better really is a great story that we have in the book of acts and so many powerful and wonderful lessons that you find in it But i tell you the story we keep coming back to over and over and over again that kind of underlines and weaves through every piece of it is if you'll just go god's way god will do powerful things and that's what you have through this story People, individuals who went God's way, they decided, yes, I'm going to respond to the gospel. Yes, I'm going to, to, to be baptized into Christ. And they go on their way rejoicing, as it says about the Ethiopian treasure. And we as a church, if we'll just go God's way, the way, we will do well. Because God can do powerful things through people who are doing things His way. And I encourage us to be that kind of people. If you need the invitation to get your life right, to, to respond and, and become a child of God through baptism, to, as Paul said in, in chapter 22, which we didn't read this verse, but Ananias told him, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Well, that, that's my invitation to you tonight. If you've not done that, tonight's the night to arise. I'm going to change it come forward, be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. If you need the invitation to do that, please come forward as we stand and sing this. Hosanna, you're my key. Thanks for listening and studying God's Word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation, or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.